This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will often select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 161st episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are looking at All-Star Comics 63 from DC Comics, cover dated November-December 1976. But first, a little feedback. Last time, during hashtag War Comics Month, we read an issue, or two, of Captain Storm. Billy D. from Monsters and Magazine said it was a good show. Thank you, Bill. Kirk Spencer said that Captain Storm was one of his favorites. Mike Zomkowski called it a great episode. Thank you, Mike. Mark Adams from the Mark's Mess podcast said he was a big fan of the music in the episode, although it could have been even better. A bit of a John Philip Sousa march will lift any day, but I do prefer the Thunderer to Liberty Bell. But what do I know? Well, Mark, based on that feedback, I would say you know more than I do about this topic. (laughs) Now, staying across the pond, we heard from Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, who said it was a terrific episode, and then let the folks at the Checkered Past podcast know about it as well. That show explores the go-go checks period of DC history, which that issue fell into. I don't think I mentioned the go-go checks particularly when I talked about the cover, but if you saw the post, if you saw the image of the cover, you did see the checks right there across the top of the cover. Thank you, uh, Sir Martin, for letting the team at Checkered Past know about our coverage of Captain Storm. Now, a couple people wrote in specifically about the War Comics special, technically not a quarter bin, but that episode that Luke and Kirk and I did. But those comments sort of fit here thematically, talking about Captain Storm and hashtag War Comics Month. So I'm going to include those comments here as well. And we heard from Vic in Phoenix. As always... Your current episode was a fun listen and a great way to pass the day behind the wheel. Although I must confess that I've never been the biggest fan of war comics. I've read one here and there, and I once owned the first dozen or so issues of Marvel's Nom. Nonetheless, I can't really put a finger on it, but there's something about the genre that's never connected with me. As a kid, I much preferred my Transformers to G.I. Joe, if you get what I mean. Having said that, however, I'm a proud veteran who served six-plus years in the U.S. Army Intelligence Corps with two tours overseas. My grandfather also served in World War II, so it runs in the family. I appreciate the support you've always shown to the armed forces, and as such, I've enjoyed these comics reviews immensely. Thanks, Professor. Now, Vic, if a man who is both a veteran and a comics book fan 
chooses to not be a fan of war comics, I'm not going to question that at all. Thank you, Vic, for the continued support and feedback for the show. And of course, thank you for your service. And on that War Comics episode, Sir, Sir Martin of Grey also had some comments. So hang on. Are you telling me that the haunted tank wasn't a weird war tale story set inside an aquarium? No, Mart. Different kind of tank. Different kind of tank. Thanks for a great episode, such top guests. I wonder if Luke and Kirk, and indeed your good self, have come across the UK's Commando books, black and white digests telling tales of conflicts down the centuries. They've been going since 1961, published by DC Thompson of Beano fame, and are well past number, Martin here says, 5,000? Wow. Collecting them would be a lovely new project for Luke. (laughs) You can download a free issue here at commandocomics.com. I love when our listeners think of what would be appealing to each other. Very good recommendation, Mark. That bit with the creature commandos being shot into space reminds me of when the same writer, Robert Kaniger, fired most of the Wonder Woman supporting cast summoning them to his office and confining them to a desk drawer. Peter Tomasi and Patrick Gleason brought Dinosaur Island back in their Superman books a few years ago, along with Captain Storm. It was splendid stuff. No, Martin, I do remember that, and I'm actually pretty sure I read those as well. Mart says he loved the Sousa marches, but it's really hard to take that one used for Monty Python seriously. See, again, I think that's more your British showing there, Mart, or at least my lack of in-depth Python knowledge. Never mind New Frontier, Mart adds, the losers died two different ways in Crisis on Infinite Earths, once in the comic modern-day Markovia and once in a special in 1945, Germany. I did enjoy listing the favorite characters. Somewhere, Mademoiselle Marie, the battle doll, is weeping. Attractively, no doubt, in French. I was a big war comics fan in the late 70s and 80s, but I don't enjoy tales set outside the Great War or the Second World War. Also, I am the anti-Luke, with no interest in tanks and armor, I just want nice human stories. Ah, well, war wheels for courses and all of that. The Viking Commando is about to make a comeback in DC's Endless Winter event. That is nice, uh, Luke. Kirk, I hope you're listening uh, to that bit of info. Mart also says he recently found out where the name Sad Sack comes from. Tut. Well, Mart, Yes. Roll on next year. Perhaps I'll tell you how great-grandpa Baxter went to war and got involved in some disgraceful shenanigans. Well, that does sound tempting, Mart. Thanks for sharing all of those thoughts. Always appreciate hearing from you. Uh, Let me address one comment in particular. And yes, I've had to do it many times, but I hate breaking French hearts. 
Now, in terms of that episode, I don't want to speak for Luke, but I think we were both saving the lovely Marie for Kirk to lovingly discuss. Maybe it's when I brought up Lady Blackhawk. All thoughts of the lovely Marie just fled from our minds. I just hope that that didn't cut too dramatically into our hot French war resistance fighter demographic. And we heard from Dr. Ange, who admitted he is not a huge fan of the war genre. I only got these here and there, usually by folks who would get me any comic they saw. That said, I do try to pick up Blackhawks when I can. Love the multinational flavor of the group, gotta love Zinda, and I actually liked the Chaken rethink. As always, thanks for covering. Good to hear about all these characters again. Now, if you know Ange, you may know that he is a big fan of Howard Shaken, so I'm not surprised that that was a version of Blackhawk that he appreciated. Social media love for those two episodes came from my old comrade, Paul the Book Guy, now from the Knight Rider cast. Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Kyle Benning, Karen from Between the Pages, Laurel Mountainflower One from the Huntress podcast. Jason from Hawaii, Bill from the Bat Pod, Sir Luke of the Upstate, Kirk, Big Five Army, Chris Lydon, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Ed Moore from the Mighty Thorcast, Chris Willette, Chris Lydon, Chris from Professor Frenzy, It's a Show, and those are all different Chris's. Artist Lauren Skinkis, Donald Bergen, Oren, Mark Wilkins, Manuel Carmona, Randy Watts, we love comic books, and our listeners of the year, the kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. So let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we get back, we'll be looking at All-Star Comics number 63. This year, in 2020, we will see DC Comics celebrating the 80th anniversary of Robin, and so will Terrence, Ryan, and myself here on the podcast. Every other episode this year, well, (laughs) as long as Rob can keep everything straight, will have us following Tim Drake in the 1990s-2000s DC timeline. The following episode, we will be joined by a selection of special guests throughout 2020. The guests will be selecting their favorite Robin in a story that connects them to the character. It could be a comic, movie, animation. Hey, wait. So, like, uh, could we be reading Red Hood and the Outlaws on this show? Or Nightwing? Yeah, that's the idea. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, so you're opening the door to not just Tim Drake, but any Robin? Yeah. So does that mean Rick Grayson? Yeah, like the new 52 Helena Wayne, Robin of Earth 2? Heck, even the pre-crisis Robin of Earth 2? Or, dare I even say, Damien? Batman Forever? 1950s Detective and Batman Stories? Batman 66 episode? Batgirl Stephanie Brown? Teen Titans Robin with Wolfman and Perez? Jeff Johns and... Oh no. No. Scott Lobdell? No! Okay, uh, while I give my co-hosts a minute or so to digest all of this information, you can find our show, Robin Everyone Loves the Drake Comic Podcast, through the BatmanUniverse.net podcasting network also available on apple podcasts or wherever you traditionally listen to your podcasts from now if you'll excuse me i think terrence might need a bottle of water 
Or maybe a paper bag. No! New 52! It's gonna be okay, Terrence. It's gonna be okay! Change of Tim Drake's origin. Don't worry, Terrence. Crazy Red Robin costume. It's gonna be okay. Uh, maybe it won't happen. And we're back. All-Star Comic 63 at a cover price of 30 cents. Even though my copy does not have that info, well, because the top 15% of the cover is missing. But that does mean that I acquired this book at nearly a 17% markdown, which actually doesn't seem all that impressive now that I say it out loud. Speaking of that, partially missing cover. It was done by Rich Buckler, Wally Wood, and Tatiana Wood. And until this issue, it never even occurred to me that Wally Wood and Tatiana Wood could be related to each other. I mean, Wood is not that strange a name, but there are a lot of family connections in comics. Parents and children, spouses. So it's not a crazy thought. And lo and behold, they were married in 1950, and actually, they divorced about a decade before this issue hit the stands, so I wonder if that working relationship was at all awkward. I hope not. We can be professionals here. The cover shows a big old Solomon Grundy making quick work of Hawkman and Wildcat with a worried Power Girl flying up behind them. While Grundy proclaims that he will smash all the puny humans, the Fiddler adds, and then the Injustice Gang will take over the world. Ah, yes. The era when speech balloons appeared on covers. We also get a little teeny tiny box at the bottom telling us that we dare not miss the death of Dr. Fate. And the top third of the cover is quite cluttered with small figures of Power Girl, Superman, and the Jay Garrick Flash. With these words, the legendary Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics with the Super Squad. The basic figure of Solomon Grundy on the cover is pretty good. It's a dramatic scene. It does convey what happens inside the issue. Really, what more do you need? Well, DC evidently thought we needed lots of words and little figures. Uh, and in case I forget to mention this later, when I talk about my history with this title, with All-Star Comics, I will confess that I never really knew the difference between the JSA and the Super Squad. I know. Revoke my geek card now. The story, The Death of Dr. Fate, was written by Paul Levitz with art from Wally Wood over Keith Giffen layouts. We start in media res as this issue continues right on from the end of issue 62. And we are told about heroism, a combination of nobility and bravery, two qualities not present when Wildcat attacked Hawkman seconds ago. But despite that, the worst is yet to come. 
the fiddler is using the hypnotic sounds of his violin to force Wildcat into fighting Hawkman. Wildcat tells Hawkman that the song says he must die and delivers what he believes to be the killing blow. Fiddler is pretty stoked about this. He is the first JSAer to suffer the revenge of the Injustice Society. Wildcat comes out of the mind control, distraught that he has killed his teammate. And now he is itching for revenge. The Fiddler sends Solomon Grundy to intercept Wildcat. Grundy backhands Wildcat into a bunch of crates. Cat has made Grundy mad. Ted keeps coming after him. And fortunately for the aging fighter, Power Girl and Superman arrive just in time to deal with Grundy by hoisting him up and heading out to sea with him into the nearby cooling volcano whose pit they use as Grundy's prison. Wildcat is grateful to learn that Hawkman has survived his attacks, although it does cause Wildcat the joke that he can't do anything right these days. Shira was kidnapped at the end of issue two by the villain Xanadu. This is Xanadu with a Z, by the way. This is not Madame Xanadu with an X, who is still a little over a year away from making her DC Doorway into Nightmare debut. And it's another four years until we get to the epic 1980 movie, Xanadu. Back to the story. We head to Egypt as Flash and Green Lantern race across the sands of Cairo, hoping to find a cure for the dying Dr. Fate. They are distracted when they see the shadow of a man on a winged horse flying over them. And we are promised more on that next issue. Back at JSA headquarters, our man Dr. Midnight and the star-spangled kid try to save the life of Dr. Fate. McNiter uses the cosmic rod to amplify the power levels of his medical equipment, but this appears to fail. Frustrated, our man delivers a punch to the computer monitor. I'm the man of the hour, and I'm telling you, Dr. Fate's hour is over. Our man and the star-spangled kid vent their frustrations by tracking down the being responsible for Kent Nelson's condition, Xanadu with a Z. They find Xanadu floating in the air above the city. I should describe Xanadu. He is a yellow, sort of skeletal-looking guy with creepily long fingers, but an epic purple outfit and cloak. Next to him, also floating in the air, is the comatose form of Shara Hall. Xanadu showers bolts of his chaos energy down upon the city. Star-Spangled Kid attempts to channel the power of his cosmic rod through our man, hoping that the miracle in our man's bloodstream might intensify the blast. And that, my friends, is superhero teamwork. But it is all to no avail as Xanadu manages to erect a force field that deflects the blast harmlessly away. 
You face Xanadu, who will crush you and erect a world of chaos in your stead. By in your stead, he evidently meant in 2020. He unleashes a volley of energy at the star-spangled kid, but the kid uses the technology of his star-born rod to reflect it back on the villain. No, the bad guy exclaims, for the first time in unaccounted eras, Xanadu has been struck a blow. The villain begins to fall out of the sky. He attempts to marshal the full concentration of his chaos power, but the ambient energy only serves to awaken Dr. Fate. From his medical chamber, Fate raises his arm and generates an onk-shaped bolt of energy that fells Xanadu. Rising from the bed, Fate retrieves the helmet of Nabu and encases Xanadu in a sealed cage of amber. It's incredible, Superman exclaims, but Dr. Fate replies, No, my friends, it is magic. And then feeling pretty darn good about himself, Fate wraps this all up. Tonight, you have seen a dead man walk and a being who lived millions of years die. And in the last page epilogue, two big moments occur. First, Superman retires from the JSA effective immediately, and I insist you elect Power Girl to full membership as my replacement. Also, the Injustice Society's Icicle conspires with his secret hidden colleagues over the next stage of his plan. He intends on striking back at the JSA through their weakest member, our man. The End. I should add that, of course, because this is a book from the 1970s, it has a hostess ad, Green Lantern and the Fruit Pie Scene, the title of which is kind of a spoiler as to which yummy hostess snack will be used to save the day. There was also a middle-page spread of the CBS Saturday morning lineup, circa 1976. And we're looking at Sylvester and Tweety, Bugs and the Roadrunner, Tarzan, Shazam, Isis, some legitimate top notch shows. Also, because this is a DC book from the mid-70s, it has a DC Planet page, which is one of my favorite in-house columns for either of the big companies. The headline in this one is The Death of Wonder Woman and Freedom Fighters 5. Other issues that get recognized are Adventure Comics 448 featuring Aquaman, Batman Family 8, DC Superstars number 9, G.I. Combat 196, attention Kirk Spencer, it's a haunted tank story, Superboy 221, and Tarzan 225. I wonder how the decisions were made as to which issues, which titles got the treatment. No knowledge of this, no information, but I suspect that new titles and low-selling titles got first priority for appearing on the Daily Planet, getting that extra marketing push. So what did I think of this issue? And first, 
I'm pretty sure I had this comic at the time, or at least had access to it. This is when I lived overseas. That's right. I was in Thailand for the U.S. Bicentennial. But there were three of us in the neighborhood who read and bought comics, me, Wade, and Peter. And we traded back and forth and borrowed each other's comics and all that. I do not have a recollection of having this in my index card database. So I'd lean towards Wade or Peter actually owning this one, but the cover is very recognizable to me. I instantly knew I'd seen this before, that big old Solomon Grundy tossing the team around. I knew that image. No recollection of the story, but I do admit that I was nostalgically biased towards this issue. At the time, I don't remember if I understood the parallel Earth thing, Earth 1 and Earth 2 and all that, but I did understand that this was a team of the older original heroes, that that's what Earth 2 was, and that Earth 1 was the newer or current versions of those characters. Again, I don't remember how deep my understanding or knowledge of that went. I also remember remembering that All-Star Comics was an important title, an important comic in DC history. And maybe I just bought the marketing, those Daily Planet pages. Rosakis, you got me! But whatever the reason, whatever the source was, I knew that All-Star Comics was important, that this was a revival title. And that made it historical in some way. Similarly, uh, the Showcase book was revived around this time, and I bought that one for sure, the, the Showcase uh, issues. Like I said, I don't think I bought All-Star, but I know I read some of these. And that is one of the distinctive things about comics of that era, when newsstands and drugstores and spinner racks and all that, but, you know, when those were the main sources of distribution. We like to think of us the comic book readers ourselves as the customers for comic book companies, but we're really not. And we really never have been their primary customer. Nowadays, comic book stores are the primary customers for DC and Marvel and Dark Horse and Image and all the others. The exception being crowdfunded books and a few publishers that have struck out on their own. Now, back in the 70s, the teeny tiny exception would be mail subscriptions. But other than that, DC was selling their product to all those places I mentioned before, newsstands and drugstores. And for those customers, they wanted product that was more likely to sell. They wanted seasoned product, tested product, which meant, and I know this sounds crazy to modern ears, but they wanted comic books with big numbers, not number ones, because by definition, those are untested properties. But an issue in the 60s, the 160s, the 260s, that's a much more comfortable order for a retailer to make, which is why DC did these revivals. I, I mentioned two of them, and, and there is a third I'll talk about uh, here, but uh, first, Quick history on All-Star Comics. Issue 1 came out in 1940 with stories featuring The Flash, The Spectre, Sandman, among others. 
It ran for 11 years and 57 issues before going on a brief hiatus in 1951. A a hiatus that lasted until 1976 when this run began. The revival encompassed All-Star Comics 58 through 74, the last one coming out in 1978. And even that bit of numbering is, let's say, creative. Because after issue 57, back in 1951, the numbering did continue. There was a issue 58. It was just All-Star Western. The title changed names and ran through issue 119. So this 1970s revival was the second continuation of All-Star's original numbering. Very, very strange. And in a weird way, sort of comforting. Because you think, what are these comic book companies thinking about today with their crazy numbering and legacy this and renumbering that? But here's DC doing the same nutty numbering 45 years ago. I did mention Showcase, another historical DC title, a title that began the Silver Age, of course, with Showcase number four in 1956. The title ran until 1970, ending with issue 93. After a briefer hiatus, at least compared to to All-Star, the title came back in 1977. And I bought those issues, at least through issue 100. That would be three issues of the new Doom Patrol, three issues of Power Girl, and the 100th issue celebration. Sorry, Sir Luke, I do not remember reading the Hawkman issues. And I didn't own the last issue, 104, featuring OSS, Spies at War, but I am positive that I read it. The other title, just to mention it, whose publishing history is kind of amazing, is Blackhawk, because it had both a publisher change from quality to DC and two hiatuses of approximately seven years and six years while maintaining its numbering right up until its final, last issue in 1984 with issue 273. Now, at this point, I feel I should apologize to the Justice Society and to the Super Squad, whoever they are, for taking so much time to talk about, you know, stuff other than their comic. And I acknowledge that usually means that the comic wasn't good. But that's not the case this time. This was a good, enjoyable, fun read. It was a good story. It just sparked so much other stuff for me. So again, I apologize. So now let me talk briefly, at least a little bit, about the comic book itself, which, in case you forgot, was All-Star Comics 63. And let me start with the one thing I did not like. And that was the very brief death of Dr. Fate. I know that Dr. Fate is a supernatural character, and death may be different for him than it is for us mere mortals, but still, the death and recovery were just too fast. That was too quick, uh, maybe five, six pages apart. This is one area where maybe a little bit of stretching out the story, a little bit of decompression, that might have been called for. This was a two-parter. Could have easily been three, with the dramatic aspect of fate's death hanging over us for an issue. 
And it's weird. It seems like there's a mixed message about how important fate's death is within the context of the story. On one hand, it is the title of the story, so they're not running from it. But on the other hand, it merits only one tiny one-inch box on the bottom corner of the cover. And again, only lasts maybe a third of the issue. So the messaging may have been a bit muddled in terms of how big a deal they wanted to make of the death of this long-term character. I've been listening to Chris Sheehan's show a lot recently, his X-Lapsed podcast, where he's looking at current X-books from the Hox Pox Docs era. And one of the things that really annoys him is, because of current plot, death has no consequence in those stories. There's no, there's no dramatic point for death because it's reversed so easily. And reading this with that fox and socks notion on my mind, you know, maybe that bothered me more than it should have. But timing is everything. And the promptness of fate's recovery from death did sort of bother me. As for everything else in this issue, it works out. The Wildcat-Hawkman fight, that was a real winner. I'm a fan of Wildcat. I think his voice was captured here very well, his world weariness, and his kind of slightly snarky attitude. Power Girl and Superman dropping Solomon Grundy into a volcano, that was unexpected and pretty cool too, to be honest. I don't know if that would pass muster with comics readers today. That seems like a pretty cruel and unusual punishment. But to my thinking, because this is make-believe and all that, it was a pretty cool and unusual punishment. And then we have Hawkman's concern for Shaira. This was back when comic characters could be happily married. You know, the good old days. And Xanadu, with a Z, kind of creepy-looking character in the good way, and certainly powerful, a reasonable villain to take on a whole team of heroes. And the hints of what's to come in the next issue, that's a nice bit of 70s writing. Wrap up this story, but leave enough threads to keep the soap opera going, to give the reader just enough for them to really want to come back next time. And on the front end, This did a good job of bringing us up to speed as to where we were in the story when the issue started. That was very well done. And with some multi-part stories from this era, that's not always the case. But the way Paul Levitz worked that stuff into the body of the story of this issue, that is good comic book writing. And Superman retiring. Nice. One of the cool things about Earth 2, one of its distinctive features, was the notion that characters could change their statuses quo. Getting married. Having kids. Hello, Helena Wayne Huntress. Aging. And retiring. Now, I'm not so sure that at my workplace, when I retire, I'll get the final say, or the only say, as to who my tenure track replacement will be, like Superman does here. Like, dude, check your yellow sun privilege, okay? 
If there's one thing I know about super teams from this era, the JLA, the JSA, and the Legion, is that they have rule books, procedure manuals, and processes to cover every possible contingency. And I seriously doubt that Superman gets to pick his own replacement upon retiring is spelled out in some particular subsection. Just saying. But that scene, the passing of the torch, again, just a little more real estate could have added to the drama of that. It is over and done in half a page. But that is just how comics were written back in 1976. But how are Little things like that going to affect my verdict on the issue? The verdict. On All-Star Comics 63, this one had a few strikes against it, including picking up right from the end of the prior issue, which can be a risk. They managed it very well here, and they did cram an awful lot of stuff into too few pages. But despite that, I think this issue succeeded in being a satisfying read in and of itself, a number of endings and resolutions, while also setting the stage in a number of ways for the next issue. A real quality read, a definite quarter bin deal. That wraps up my coverage of All-Star Comics 63, bringing episode 161 to a close. And I sense... But it was kind of a rambly episode. Not sure how to feel about that. Sorry. Anyway, next time, we're looking at a Christmas issue, or at least one that has Christmas in the story title. Or at least it has the word Christmas on the cover. I really hope this works out. We'll find out next time in an episode that should be out a few days before or after Christmas 2020, when we cover The Ray, number 20, from DC Comics, cover dated January 1996. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode, the Justice Society All-Star Comics, the Stargirl TV show, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen. And I'll see you in the quarter bit. The quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.